Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. The topic of my lecture today is going to be the Roman Republic from the time of Hannibal to the time of uh, Sulla. So uh, I know a lot of people like the lectures, some people prefer the discussions. I prefer the discussions because it's easier, but it's just a matter of um, expedience for me. This week, everybody's out of town. So with that uh, apology aside, the, uh, the interesting thing about the Roman Republic from Hannibal's defeat at Zama in 202 until the rise of Marius and Sulla and Sulla's reforms is that it's almost an exact reflection of what we see in America since 1945. So there are several problems that start to emerge in the Roman political system and in um, Roman society that are should be very recognizable to an American or a European of today. So first of all, we have a deficient constitution. The Roman constitution was basically no longer able to fulfill the needs of a expanding state. So the Roman constitution uh, that had been in place and had been evolving slowly since about uh, since the Roman uh, the Romans throughout the Etruscans in 508 BC was basically a limited republican constitution, and it had officers elected for annual terms. Uh, I'm not going to go over this in detail uh, like I did in the last lecture, but consuls, praetors, quaestors, idols, and censors. Uh, basically, all these offices were for a term of one year. And then the main uh, legislative body and foreign policy body was the Senate, uh, which was comprised of the aristocrats uh, and the top men in Rome, uh, about a, a few hundred men uh, at its peak. I think 300 was usually the number it would go up to and uh, at other times less than that. The, uh, the other aspect of the Roman Constitution, uh, in, actually back up. So the main sources we have for this and sort of what I'm going to go off of when I'm explaining this is Polybius, who is a Greek historian writing um, in the uh, writing in like the 130s or 140s, 30s, 20s BC. And he talks about the Roman Constitution and he breaks it down into there's basically three parts, sort of like the American Constitution with legislative, um, executive and judicial. But in the Roman Constitution, there's not really a judicial branch that's separate. Judicial uh, functions are fulfilled by the other parts. The The first branch is the Senate. The other branch is the people in uh, three different uh, legis legislative bodies, uh, the most important of which is the uh, Comitia Centuriata, which uh, conducted elections and also declared war. And then... Um, the other branch was the, uh, in a way, I mean, it wasn't technically done this way, but the other part is the executive, which was these officers who elect, who were elected for annual terms. This is all great because it, it prevented any one person from getting too much power. The Romans were afraid of having a king. And so, and they were afraid of any one aristocrat getting power over all the others. So this constitution sort of maintained a balance of power between the different aristocratic families and then also maintained something of a balance with uh, the plebeians, that is the, the lower class people. This was great for a small Italian state, and it even worked up to the point where Italy, uh, where Rome controlled Italy. 
and it had functioned fairly well through the Second Punic War, uh, and it had certain means of dealing with crises, such as electing a dictator, where they would they would appoint one man to take total control of the army and the state and have extraordinary powers for a, a very limited period, usually six months. But it wasn't going to be good enough in the coming century or two because uh, as Rome expanded into Spain and Greece and Asia and North Africa, the constitution, it would be very difficult to have a consistent policy conducted by officers who are rotating in and out every year. Another uh, issue with the constitution was uh, well, this isn't really a constitutional problem, but more of a uh, just general structural political problem, is that Rome was sort of a victim of its own success. And this is a common thing to societies where they achieve greatness, they basically beat all of their major rivals, and then it's time to exploit and get the money, get the wealth, get the resources from their neighbors and from their vassal states. And what happens is, as I think most people are, are fairly aware is that now rather than there being any impetus for the society to stay tight and for it to uh, select men on the basis of their toughness, their military ability, their trustworthiness, their loyalty, now it's sort of a free-for-all and men who aren't of the highest moral caliber are able to get into, uh, into office and the energy of the society is less concerned with beating foreign rivals and more concerned with fighting over spoils. And so we're going to see that as this as this period goes on. At the beginning of it, you see men like Scipio Africanus, uh, the victor at the Battle of Zama, defeated Hannibal, or great other, other great men like, um, like Flaminius, or uh, Scipio Aemilianus, the adopted grandson of the victor of Zama. And men like this were still of the old caste, the old mold, the old like staunch Roman uh, loyal, tough sort of man. But as time went on, there was more of a value placed on your ability to win at politics in Rome. And so how do you win at politics in Rome? Well, it, it certainly helps to be a good military officer and a brave man, but that's not all. That's not good enough anymore. Now you've got to be a good rhetorician. You've got to be a good schemer. You've got to be able to stab people in the back and form coalitions within the government. And at the most extreme toward uh, beyond the period about which we're talking, um, if you go beyond Sulla into the, the, the first century BC into Pompey and Caesar, you're going to see men like uh, Cicero, who was not of a military background. He was not of an aristocratic background. He was able to make his reputation in Rome solely on his ability to speak and on his ability to win cases in law courts, defending men, other uh, other politicians from corruption charges. Because basically the entire government started to be run or all politics started to be run based on who could throw legal charges at one another. And that should be something familiar as well. Another big thing that we'll see is uh, in this period, the uh, second century BC mostly, is class strife. So as the Romans are getting more spoils from the Orient and from Greece, uh, more slaves, uh, more, uh, more money, more gold, more silver, and, um, and then also more land in the, the provinces that they're taking, now these spoils aren't going to all Romans. It's not like they're distributing it to people e equally. 
or evenly, even according to class, now the rich are able to buy up tons of land and secure uh, lucrative trade deals for themselves. And this is going to cause a, a, a spread in the wealth distribution so that the very rich are extremely rich and the um, middle and, and lower classes are fighting just for to survive. Another problem with, uh, you know, with, with this class strife, you know, the problem with that is particularly for the Romans was one of military organization. Their army uh, in, in earlier times through the Punic Wars had been based on the principle of uh, a mass uh, conscription. So the entire state, all the people were in the military and uh, at least anybody above. I mean, the, the lowest class was usually not in the military, but the patricians and anybody over uh, a certain property qualification. I think it was uh, 80. Uh, if, you're, if your property was valued at over 80 brass uh, pieces, then you were qualified for military service. So a fairly low qualification. And, uh, you know, this military had been the one that had been, you know, defeated in all those battles against Hannibal, but had still managed to pull through the war and win at Zama. Uh, at the Battle of uh, Cannae, Rome's great defeat, uh, at the hands of Hannibal, where they lost something like 50 or 70,000 men. They also had lost 80 senators. So the aristocratic class was participating in the military, was sharing the risks with everybody else. But toward the later end of this period, um, in the, the 140s BC with the Third Punic War and the Macedonian Wars in Greece and uh, later wars in, in North Africa and Spain, the aristocrats were less and less interested in dying on the battlefield. So the army needed to be uh, drastically overhauled, and, and it was um, later on. Another thing you'll start to see is the emergence of factions, uh, and this is particularly toward the 140s, 30s, uh, and, and on. You start to see political factions at Rome, the Populares and Optimates, and these are um, comparable to you know like Republicans and Democrats today, although there's dispute about that, and I'll, I'll talk about that. The other thing we'll start to see is the emergence of power struggles between different parts of the empire. So Rome and Roman citizens, the parts that had become part of the state early on in Roman history, the areas just around Rome, those are the most privileged people. They had the most uh, money and the most political rights. They were full Roman citizens. Rome had in incorporating the other Italian states like the uh, city-states of uh, the Samnites or the Etruscans or even the Greeks in southern Italy had extended to them uh, sort of contracts. Uh, they'd form Rome had formed alliances with these other Italian states, and an ally of Rome had certain obligations to Rome. An allied state had to provide men for the military, had to pay taxes, but it wasn't given full political enfranchisement. The allied states were not allowed to participate in Roman elections. And as we get on in this period, there, you know, after, after years of, of service in the Roman military, after sharing the burden of building the empire, those Italian states are going to start to demand that they get their rights too. And then the final thing we'll see is even an even more extreme manifestation of this regional power struggle. We'll start to see a lot of Rome's uh, vassal states, not just the Italian allies, but states like Numidia in North Africa or some of the Spanish tribes actually break away uh, in, in the case of the Spanish tribes breaking away under Roman under a, a dissident Roman politician and try to form their own uh, country outside of uh, Roman control. 
So as I discuss this, I'm going to break it into two periods. The first is 202 to 146 BC, and that's a period of uh, expansion and exploitation of their advantage. And then the second period is that of 146 to 80 BC, and that is a period of disintegration. Now, why have I picked those round numbers? 202 is the Roman victory over Hannibal, and 146 is the uh, two big things happened. One was the final destruction of Carthage in the Third Punic War, and the second was uh, Rome's conquest, uh, final conquest of Greece by defeating the Achaean League and conquering and destroying Corinth. So in the first period, expansion, exploitation. The regional situation in the Mediterranean at the beginning of the period looked like this. You had Rome controlling Italy and Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, southern France, so southern Gaul, and then uh, Rome had good control of the Spanish uh, eastern coast from uh, from the Pyrenees down to uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, then called the P P Pillars of Hercules. And Rome was pushing into the interior of Spain. Rome also had de facto control of North Africa, although Carthage was still there and still uh, a sort of a power. I mean, they, they'd been stripped of their navy and had to pay a huge indemnity to Rome, but they were allowed to control their area in Tunisia. And, but Rome did have uh, good control or some uh, ex exercise some power in North Africa through its Numidian allies. The Numidians are the uh, North African people who controlled like Algeria and uh, Morocco. And they weren't a unified people at the time, but there was one main guy in North Africa by the name of Massinessa who had been a Roman ally, had, had been crucial at the Battle of Zama in helping Scipio defeat Hannibal. And the Numidians were known for their prowess at, uh, with light cavalry. In the east, and then Rome was able to really control the whole Western Mediterranean through its naval power. In the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Rome was making some leeway, but it wasn't a major power yet. The main powers in the Eastern Mediterranean were those uh, successor states to the empire of Alexander the Great. So Alexander had uh, died in 323 BC. He had built an empire that controlled Greece, Macedonia, uh, Thrace, Asia, uh, Asia Minor, uh, what's now Turkey, the Levant, that's the coast of uh, Syria and Palestine, uh, Egypt, and uh, Persia, and then even parts farther east. Upon his death, his generals split up this empire, and these states still existed in the second century BC for the most part. So the main three that uh, we're interested in are Ptolemaic Egypt. So that was Egypt uh, under the dynasty founded by Alexander's general uh, Ptolemy. And then uh, the Seleucid kingdom, that is the kingdom of uh, Alexander's general Seleucius, which controlled most of Asia and uh, Syria and had a big, uh, a lot of power still in Asia Minor, even up to the coast of uh, the Aegean. And then the final one is the Macedonian kingdom that is the remnant of Alexander's uh, homeland that is the kingdom built by his father, really, uh, Philip II. And the Macedonian kingdom 
by this time didn't control Greece totally. There were uh, a bunch of smaller states and leagues that had formed and that were dominated by Macedon and afraid of Macedonian power, but still maintained some independence and would try to maintain their independence by uh, getting Roman help. So these states would be things like uh, there was a there's Pergamon led by throughout through a lot of the second century BC by a fellow named Eumenes. And that is a state on the northwest part of Anatolia, a fairly small state. And then Rhodes in the south, uh, the island of Rhodes was famous uh, for having a, a fairly strong navy. And it's also famous for you've probably heard of the Colossus of Rhodes, a big uh, statue that was supposed to have uh, been at the their harbor, big bronze statue, uh, the inspiration for the Statue of Liberty. And then also in Greece itself, you had the Achaean League and the Aetolian League. Now, you know, when, when discussing Greek history, I, I think one thing that every man ought to do, and I am deficient in this myself, but you ought to know the geography of Greece pretty well. I probably I probably know the geography of Greece better than that of like Maryland and Virginia, despite living here my whole life, because it's very difficult to just read about this Greek history and constantly you're, you're having city names and region names uh, that are coming up in any book you're reading. And it's, it's impossible to really follow the story unless you have a pretty good handle on it. So I'll just briefly sketch Greek uh, geography. You've got uh, that southern part of Greece, that big almost island, that peninsula is called the Peloponnesus. That's where Sparta is in the south in a region called Lacedaemon. And then over, if you follow up the Peloponnesus, you go across a little isthmus called the Isthmus of Corinth. This Corinth is right there. Once you come across the Isthmus, you come into Attica, which is the region around Athens. It's a little tiny peninsula. Follow a little bit north, there's Boeotia, and that's where Thebes is, one of the other major Greek states. And then north of that is Thessaly, and then north of that is Macedon. And Macedon uh, is the area kind of around what's now Thessalonica and the Chalcidice. And the Chalcidice is that weird uh, three-fingered uh, peninsula in northern Greece. All that's important because the Romans were fighting major wars here for about 50 years. There were the four Macedonian wars. The first of these Macedonian wars happened at the same time as the Second Punic War. So the Macedonians got involved because they they basically saw Rome as a, a looming threat and they made an alliance with Carthage. Rome during the Second Punic War had been worried that Macedon might send troops to assist Hannibal in Italy. Um, it wouldn't be the first time that Greek troops had been used in Italy or, or troops from the Balkans from Greece had come over to Italy. Back in the uh, 270s, uh, King Pyrrhus of Epirus had invaded Italy to, in assist, to assist the Greek kingdoms in southern Italy or the Greek city-states there. So the Romans were rightfully afraid of Greek interference in Italy. And in the Second Punic War, they didn't really fight a big war in Macedonia. The First Macedonian War was really just uh, sort of a holding action by the Romans to prevent the Macedonians from getting involved in Italy while the Romans handled their bigger problems with the Carthaginians. But after Carthage was defeated, Rome's hands were free. They had a number of reasons for getting involved in, in Greece, uh, one of which was that there was a lot of piracy coming from the uh, the Illyrians, that is the people 
just north of Greece, inhabiting what's now like Albania and Yugoslavia. And another reason was just uh, basically just Roman ambition and uh, Roman uh, Roman wanting to meddle. Uh, the Romans just wanted to meddle in other people's affairs and you know get money. So the first or the sorry the second Macedonian War was because a a powerful king had emerged in Macedon by the name of Philip V. And he was expanding Macedonian power throughout Greece. And so Rome, you know, you could think of like Britain in the 20th century seeing Germany uh, or seeing France in the, 18th, in the 18th and 19th century, saw this as a potential threat to their interests, their trading interests, and um, decided to help out and play off the littler powers of Greece against Macedon. So uh, I don't want to cover the Macedonian Wars uh, one by one, uh, but I'll just sort of cover them in general. Basically, the Macedonian Wars resemble the Punic Wars in that Rome was able to beat an enemy several times and each time extracted more and more in each peace treaty, more uh, bigger indemnities and then more territorial concessions, and then was able to continue to use the remaining uh, power of the defeated side, in, in this case Macedon, to uh, maintain fear in the other uh, Greek states to build alliances with them and keep playing them off against the Macedonians. And eventually they broke and destroyed the power of Macedon. So in the second second Macedonian War started right after, basically right after the end of, um, of the Second Punic War. And Rome sent its, one of its, I guess its top general, uh, and uh, consul Flamininos to Greece to deal with the problem of Philip V. Philip really didn't have a lot of allies. He'd made some allies in Boeotia, but for the most part, Rome was able to rely on the other Greek powers, uh, the Aetolian League, the Achaean League, and Pergamon and Rhodes to side with it or at least stay neutral. And uh, this uh, Flamininos is... Not to be confused with Flaminius, Flaminius was the Roman consul who was killed at Lake Trezimene in that great defeat by Hannibal in 217 BC. Strangely, as close as their names are to each other, they're not related. Flamininus, the uh, conqueror of Macedon, was uh, distantly related to uh, Fabius Maximus, the famous uh, Roman general of the Second Punic War, who was known as Fabius the Delayer because he liked to... He was a very cautious sort of leader and avoided battle with Hannibal because he knew he would lose. And because of that, he was sort of an unpopular general. But Flamininus was unlike his relative in that he was willing to have a direct fight with the Macedonians. He managed to corner their army at a place called uh, Sinocephale, or uh, this is from the Greek word, it means dog's head. And it's, uh, it's because the the hill formation. It was like two hills in a little ridge together, and I, I guess it resembled a dog's head. Uh, the first part, Sino, you'll recognize C-Y-N-O from words like cynic, comes from the Greek word kinos, uh, which means dog. Um, but why was, or how was he able to defeat the Macedonians? So I'll give a brief explanation of the, the different uh, fighting styles of each side, because I think everyone's interested in, in how these wars played out. 
So the Greek method of fighting at this time was called the phalanx, and it was basically unaltered since uh, the time of Philip of Macedon and, and Alexander's phalanx. It would be a big block of infantry, thousands and thousands of men arrayed 16 ranks deep and with huge long spears called sarasas. The sarasa probably 15 feet long or so, and you'd hold the spear in front of you with your shield, and then the first five ranks would hold their spears down, lowered, and so you'd have five spear points projecting beyond the front rank of the whole formation. And then the the rear ranks, ranks six through 16, held their spears aloft and would wave them back and forth, and that way you could deflect an arrow or a spear and at least um, make its impact less strong. So this is a very strong formation. It would would be like a steamroller if you just moved this huge phalanx forward and you protect the flanks with cavalry or light troops uh, and come into contact with the enemy, you could could just roll them over. Um, You have to imagine that it's very difficult to, it would be very difficult to fight your way past all of their spear points to get to the first rank and close and try to uh, stab the guy. Because if you look at like schematics of this, you sort of just see a bunch of spear points and um, and it, it looks like, well, it'll be fairly easy if you just push the spear points out of the way and, you know, work your way with your shield in through all those that hedgehog or that hedge of like spear points, you could easily get to the front rank and just cut your way through it. But it probably would not have been so easy because you have to imagine that each of those guys is fighting for his life and he'd be thrusting his spear back and forth, waving it side to side. Uh, It would be very, very difficult. And the other thing, too, is that uh, the spear points, the thrust of the spear would be strong enough often to impale a shield. So if you got your shield stuck on one of the spear points... Uh, you'd have to try to cut off the spear point or work your way through. And, and doing that, you'd have other spear points fly, <laughs> flying at you, might get hit in the arm, get uh, get an artery severed or something. Very nasty sort of uh, fight you'd have to have just to get to the front rank. Now, so obviously the best way to take on a phalanx is to try to get to the flanks of the rear. Now, the Macedonians were generally pretty good about covering the flanks in the rear. The way the Romans dealt with this problem at... Uh, battles like Sinocephali and then some of their later ones like in um, in the Third Macedonian War at the Great Victory at Pydna in 167 was they they used their um, the Roman they used their superior maneuverability and uh, better better organization and, and flexibility to break up the formation of the phalanx so the Roman army at this time was still uh, basically organized in the way it had been in the Second Punic War. It was broken into four basic heavy or four basic infantry t- troop types. You had velites or light infantry uh, carrying javelins, basically little armor. They would be the youngest and the the poorest men. And then uh, this, the first heavy infantry were the hastati. They would be armed with a big shield. Uh, to one or two big uh, throwing spears called uh, pila, or pilum, singular. And then uh, principes would be the third line. Those were men in the prime of life in their late 20s, early 30s, heavily armored, probably chainmail coat if they could afford it, and uh, shield, javelins, sword. And then the final rank or the final uh, troop type would have been, uh, it was called the triarii, 
And these were generally older guys, veterans, and they were armed with not the throwing spear, but a long spear in the same way that the Macedonians were. There were fewer triari, there were about half as many triari as either of the other two main troop types, the hostata, the principes. So there's a lot of debate about how the Romans actually did this, because the basic theory is you send the first line in, the hostati, uh, after the light troops have, have thrown their javelins, you send in the hostati and try to close with the enemy. And then you either withdraw the hostati and bring in the principes, or some authors argue you keep the hostati in place and the principes move up and just basically force their way in the, into the hostati ranks and keep fighting. Uh, this has been a debate among military historians for a long time. The one, um, the one who argued for the principes moving up into the hostati ranks was a German by the name of Hans Del Bruck, who was writing the 19th century and was a, a Prussian officer. So he had some idea of what he was talking about, about how confusing and difficult this would have been. My criticism of the Del Bruck method of bringing up the principes into the hostati ranks and in, in between the gaps and then forcing your way to the front is that it would be very difficult to discharge your javelins for the sec for the principes. You'd have to throw them either over the heads of your comrades or uh, like between. And then also you have a problem of command and, uh, command and control. It, it seems to violate the principle of um, unity of command if the if a, a, a maniple of principes is just moving up through a maniple of hostati. But at the same time, the other explanation isn't sufficient is uh, fraud as well, because how do you withdraw the hastati uh, and then move in the principes? It's very dangerous to try to withdraw and conduct a complex maneuver like that would entail, either moving the hastati maniples back and then in between gaps in the succeeding uh, principes line. It's just very difficult. Uh, and it is very dangerous too, because if the enemy decides to do a charge right then, your men are all jumbled up, and if they're not executing this the complex maneuver very precisely and very quickly, then you have problems. And the other issue, too, is you've got a bunch of wounded men as well who have been wounded or, or exhausted in the first fight, and you're just leaving them on the field right there, right in front of the enemy. So uh, however they did it, I mean, it, it involved a great deal of discipline and maneuverability to shift these ranks in and out. But what it gave the Romans was the ability to bring in fresh troops and hit the enemy multiple times in different ways. The other big advantage they had was the pila, uh, because these are big, heavy throwing spears. They had a big, long, uh, like foot long or foot and a half long metal head. And this, if it lodged in your shield, would be difficult to pull out, and it might render render the enemy's shield useless because it would be simply too heavy. And if you couldn't pull uh, pull the spear out, so a lot of times in these wars that the Romans were having from Hannibal even into the imperial period, the, there's accounts of the enemy just throwing aside their shield. How this worked at uh, Sinocephali with um, with Flamininus fighting against Philip V. Sinocephali was a sort of encounter battle. It was almost an accident that it happened. It occurred on a foggy morning. The two armies were on opposite sides of this uh, two-hilled ridge. And the Romans sent up a small force of light troops, Velites, to the top of the hill. And they had a skirmish with some of the Macedonian troops. Now, both generals didn't really know where the other side was. The Romans then... Uh, 
the Romans then sent up their committed their the, like the left half of their army and moved it up the hill and and the Macedonians did the same. And so then you had a big fight breaking out on the left side of the Roman line or almost really the left half of the battle was this encounter between a big Macedonian phalanx led by the king Philip and the Romans. And the Romans got really mauled and but thanks to their discipline they were able to hold for hours as the right side of the Roman line pushed up to the top of the hill uh, on the other side. Now, the Romans' big advantage here, too, was that, and why I think Flamininus decided to commit and risk uh, a fight here, was because of the broken ground. The Roman system being much more uh, loose and better at maneuver was going to be superior on broken ground hills and, and trees and stuff like that than the very cumbersome Macedonian phalanx that relied on absolute perfection, uh, dressing it right, making sure the whole line was straight for uh, hundreds of meters, perhaps a kilometer or two, and in order to like prevent gaps from opening up in the line, which the Romans could then exploit. So the Romans, the decisive thing that happened at Sinus Fallis, the Romans were able to move up on the right flank, secure the top of the hill. The Macedonians, uh, one of their commanders, Nicantor, brought up the Macedonian left but he didn't bring it up all at once, and he wasn't really able to because of the broken ground. The Macedonians engaged piecemeal, and the Romans were able to rout some of the first men or some of the first formations. This caused a cascading effect. All the Macedonians started running away and trying to surrender. The Romans pursued, and the critical moment was one tribune who's not whose name isn't mentioned, but one of their officers noticed what was going on and rallied a few uh, maniples about a thousand or two thousand men left faced marched over to the other side of the battle to the roman left flank and hit the macedonians in the rear on that side that caused a rout and the romans won the battle after um the same thing happened basically at the battle of piedna or a similar thing it wasn't like a it wasn't a, a split up into sort of two separate battles at piedna it was just one big encounter battle um, and, uh, it took about an hour for the Romans to drag out the Macedonian phalanx, get it to break up and then route it. So really, uh, thanks to Rome's superior military power and, and their, uh, which they developed through the second Punic war. And now they had these great legions and great military tradition and, uh, pretty strong leaders as well. They were able to beat the Macedonians on the battlefield several times and they further exploited this through diplomacy. Now, Roman diplomacy is uh, its a little bit different from Zog diplomacy. Now, how is that? The Romans, and you, you see this when you, if you read Polybius's accounts of these wars, uh, much of it is concerned with when did the Romans send an embassy to a particular Greek state, or when did the Greek states send embassies to Rome or to each other? Roman diplomacy was very good at enforcing, uh, at rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. The Romans, uh, when you, you see this consistently in, in the accounts of the embassies of these different states to Rome in Polybius, that the Greek petty states were always very concerned to come to the Romans and show that they were being honest and truthful with the Romans and that they hadn't tried to stab the Romans in the back. 
because the Romans were very, very vindictive. Uh, it's almost like uh, it's like a, a, a mafia movie almost. The, I mean, Italians and mafia, haha. But it, it is like just a big version of mafia sort of uh, behavior where the Romans would reward people for for siding with them and for staying true to them and for maintaining their policies. And they would viciously punish any state that stepped out of line. And this policy over, over the course of the second century eventually worked to the point where Rome was able to establish provinces over all of Greece and start to establish provinces in Macedonia or in, um, in Asia minor and bring uh, even Asia under Roman control. The Romans got into Asia, that is Asia minor, today's Turkey, Thanks to their alliances with Pergamon, that uh, state in northwestern Anatolia, northwestern Turkey, and Rhodes. The other way that they got involved was that the king of the Seleucid Empire in Syria, who controlled a lot of uh, southern Anatolia, decided to go to war with Rome in the... Um, it's right after the... It was right between the Second and Third Macedonian Wars in the, like the 180s. And he, this was King Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. He invaded Greece and the Romans pushed him out. And then eventually they, they beat his army at a huge battle in Asia Minor called the Battle of Magnesia. And uh, this battle played out in some ways similar to Sinocephale and Pydna, but Basically, the Romans were able to isolate the Macedonian center. The Romans won on the right flank. The Macedonians won on the left flank. The thing was, the Macedonian cavalry and Antiochus pursued the defeated Romans too far and couldn't return to the battle uh, quickly enough. And the Romans managed to surround the Macedonian phalanx in the center, cut it up, and, and force a, a huge defeat. Uh, and then force uh, Antiochus to the negotiating table, where he had to cede much of his land in Anatolia to Rome's uh, vassal states of Pergamum and Rhodes. So by the final chapter of Rome's conquest of Greece, well, it's their formal conquest of Greece. They kept having wars even later in Greece, but the final chapter of their, their main conquest of Greece was in the uh, 150s and, and early 140s. Macedonians rose up one last time under a pretender. This was a fellow by the name of Perseus, or he called himself Perseus, uh, the real Perseus was the Macedonian king in the Third Macedonian War and the uh, adopted son of Philip V. This Perseus was a pseudo-Perseus uh, who apparently resembled the real Perseus and traveled to Macedon and was able to convince people that he was, uh, in fact, the king of Macedon, um, the other Perseus who had been dead for years at this point and was able to lead the Macedonians in one final war against the Romans in which he was defeated. Uh, the Romans then took over basically just all of Greece. They turned on the Achaean League, who had been their allies up to this point, and routed them as well, and uh, sacked Corinth in 146. In the Western Mediterranean, the Romans continued their career of conquest and consolidation with several wars in Spain, the Celtiberian Wars, and then the Numantine War in the 130s. And they decided to finally wrap up business with Carthage, who they'd let off not so easy, but who was 
still allowed to survive after the Second Punic War. In the intervening decades, the Carthaginians had amassed tons of wealth and had sort of gotten back to their old uh, position, maybe not militarily and strategically, but certainly economically, they were winning. And the Romans were jealous of this, and some of them were fearful. Most famous among them, uh, Cato the Elder, a Roman statesman known for his staunch traditionalism and his commitment to Roman values. Uh, Cato once remarked that he the lowest paid slave in his house was his cook because he wasn't a degenerate like all the other Roman uh, elites of the time who were starting to pay Greeks to do uh, to be their cooks, kind of like uh, the English always get French cooks. Well, the Romans got Greek cooks. But Cato was having none of that. And he was, you know, he was sort of like a, I think of him as like an ancient Roman John McCain. He was thirsty for a fight. And when he saw an enemy or one he thought might be an enemy, he wanted to go after them. He's remembered for ending all of his speeches in the Senate in the late 150s, and uh, he died in 149. But he was remembered for saying always, Carthago de Linda est, Carthage must be destroyed, even if he was speaking about something else. So he was one of these foaming at the mouth kind of guys. And it worked because Rome did finally in uh, 149 go to war with Carthage for the last time. This war was notable for its brutality and savagery, even in ancient times. The Romans sent uh, Scipio Aemilianus, the adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus, to North Africa with several legions. He surrounded the city of Carthage and he forced them uh, on some pretense. Basically, the Carthaginians had had some problems with the New the Numidian tribes around them. And so that was the pretext for the Romans to get involved. The Romans put that army around Carthage and then demanded the Carthaginians give them all of their weapons and give them hostages. The Carthaginians debated whether to do it or not. Eventually they did it. And then once that condition was met, the Romans came back and said, well, now we need uh, now you need to give us more weapons and more hostages and more money. And the Carthaginians realized that and well, and then their other demand was you need to evacuate your city and move 10 miles inland and give up your port. The Carthaginians at that point realized that the Romans had no interest in making peace on any honorable terms and or any terms whatsoever. They were just trying to uh, basically take away any ability the Carthaginians had to fight them. And so the Carthaginians under their leader Hamilcar, uh, all the Carthaginians seem to be named Hamilcar, uh, decided to uh, stand and fight. Uh, the war was, as I said, savage. Uh, the Carthaginians, when they capture Roman prisoners, would torture them on the walls of Carthage in full view of the Romans, you know, cut off their fingers, gouge their eyes out, sort of thing. The Romans, in turn, did the same thing. Uh, Carthaginian prisoners were often uh, buried up to their necks on the roads and then run over with uh, carts, chariots, horses. So it was... It, the gloves were, were off. Rome... You know, the, there was never really any doubt about how the contest would end, but the desperation of the Carthaginians made it uh, a lot more of a fight than the Romans might have wanted. The Romans eventually did break into the city and slaughtered everybody and destroyed the city and allegedly sowed the fields, the fields with salt to prevent any crops from ever growing again at Carthage. This brings us to the point of 146, where I said... 
we begin the period of the disintegration of the Republic that would last until uh, the empire was established by Augustus or you know, Octavian, who took the name Augustus in uh, 27 BC. I won't be talking all the way up to Augustus. It's just way too much to cover. But the first period of Rome's disintegration up to uh, Sulla's reforms in, in the 80s. This disintegration began with uh, the wealth of uh, Greece and of the whole world pouring into Italy. The Romans got a lot of slaves. They got a lot of gold. And um, we started to see that wealth disparity start to develop where rich Romans started buying up lots of land in Italy. And this caused a problem because uh, well, it was, it was good on the one hand, because if you have one guy who controls a big farm, then he can bring in uh, cheap labor from the east, uh, slave labor, and farm it and produce uh, big uh, amounts of grain, perhaps more efficiently than the small-time Roman and Italian farmers could have up to that point. The problem was that by buying up all this land in Italy and increasing the real estate prices and and uh, pushing out all the small farmers, well, the small farmers were the backbone of the Roman army. So increasingly, you had a problem where the Roman army was finding it difficult to recruit men for campaigns, and men who went on campaign were having a hard time maintaining their farms because they would often be away for more than a year. You know, in the older times, traditionally, the campaigning season began in March and lasted until October. But when you're fighting wars in Greece and Spain and North Africa, well, it's you can't you can't really go home to your farms every year. So their wives and, and children and, and relatives were having to maintain the farms while the main man was away at war all the time. The, uh, on the other hand, there were some good things that came out of uh, the conquest of Greece for the Romans, at least culturally. Um, the famous saying that the, the Greeks conquered their conquerors uh, it applies here. The Romans were, bes were smitten with Greek culture. Uh, basically, all of the great Romans of this period were were big Hellenophiles. Even going back to Flamininus, the uh, the Roman consul who defeated uh, Philip V at Sinusophile, he was a huge Hellenophile. Uh, one of the things you know, he spoke Greek. Uh, he loved Greek culture. He even, after his victory over uh, the Macedonians, went to the Isthmian Games in Greece. One of the, not the Olympics, but another one of these Greek. Uh, big athletic competitions between the states and had proclaimed Greek freedom, freedom to all the Greeks. And both Poly Polybius and Plutarch recount that when this was proclaimed at the Isthmian Games, the Greeks started shouting and, and clapping and rejoicing. And it was so loud they couldn't even hear the uh, the herald. They had to bring the herald into the middle of the, the stadium and, and quiet everybody down again and get him to read the, out the whole proclamation because people were so enthusiastic. And, you know, I don't think that was just a, a crass or a crude trick on the part of Flamininus. He really was a lover of the Greeks and uh, really respected their civilization. Other men like this at this time, Scipio Emilianus, the conqueror of Carthage, another huge Hellenophile. Um, he was uh, one of his favorite books or his favorite book was Xenophon's uh, Cyropedia, the the story of the education and growing up of the great Persian king Cyrus the Great, uh, written in Greek by uh, Xenophon. And uh, Scipio Emilianus was also good friends with 
the Greek historian Polybius, who I've been mentioning, Polybius actually accompanied Scipio Emilianus at the battle or at the uh, siege of Carthage in uh, 146 and, and witnessed the whole thing. Another uh, some one of the other big politicians of the coming years or a couple of the big politicians of the coming years, Tiberius Gracchus and Sulla were also huge Hellenophiles. Uh, both of them could read Greek, speak Greek, and uh, were well-versed in the Greek classics. The only exceptions in this period, uh, well, not the only exceptions, but the main exceptions were uh, Cato the Elder, who was a staunch Roman and was against these Greek habits, and then Marius, uh, who I'll get to in a minute, but Marius was a man of the people and a soldier and didn't really have time for that gay Greek stuff. The other effect of Greek civilization on Rome was a sort of uh, changing of the language. You can't develop a literary language without uh, a model, usually. I mean, I guess ancient Greek would be the exception to that, but uh, Latin up to this time had not really been written down much, or it, it wasn't really used as a means of literary communication or of uh, high culture. So, for instance, people like Scipio Africanus is supposed to have uh, written his memoirs in Greek. Uh, I guess he felt that Latin wasn't sufficient to express all the ideas he needed to use. And so at about this time, with the increasing influence of Greek culture, you start to see the Latin language come into its own as a literary medium. Uh, really, um, first, the oldest Latin literature we start to see is is right around the uh, late second century, uh, plays like, Pla uh, like the plays of Plautus. And this Roman literary language had to draw on Greek for its higher terms. And it didn't do, it did adopt some words as loan words, just the way English does, where it just takes words from foreign languages. But the main way of building new words was to rely on the uh, the Latin itself and to just build up uh, words for abstract concepts based on Greek models, but without directly copying the Greek. And so in the first century BC and second and first century AD, we see the, the flowering of uh, Roman literature and uh, prose. And even the poetry emulated Greek models in its um, in its structure and, and uh, themes. So, for this last last bit, I I want to go through the uh, the life of Gaius and uh, Tiberius Gracchus, the reformers, and go through the Midian War and the invasion of the Kimbri and the Teutons, and then the rise of Myrus and Sulla, and then their disputes and, and um, Sulla's eventual conquest of Rome. So with all these problems that were brought about by the disintegration of the Roman Republic, the increasing um, the fighting over spoils over the empire, um, it was clear that reform was necessary, but the problem was that the government wasn't capable of pulling off reforms. Nobody wanted to redistribute the land uh, to the peasant class, the soldier class. Uh, the senators were perfectly happy with their latifundia, their big farms, where they were uh, using import labor. And in the political situation had become deadlocked. I mean, it should sound familiar. And a lot of patricians knew that they needed to do something about it, but they didn't really know how to do something about it. Uh, along comes Tiberius Gracchus. Tiberius Gracchus was a patrician. He was brought up in the best 
you know, uh, best Roman tradition. And he made a name for himself early on in his career as a young officer in Hispania, where he was able to extricate a Roman unit, uh, I don't know, it was legion or a few cohorts that had gotten uh, captured by the Spaniards, by the, um, the Celtiberians, and was able to negotiate uh, to get that, that unit home. Of course, this was a great embarrassment to the Senate, but uh, the soldiers' families were obviously glad that uh, Tiberius had used his local contacts uh, and the contacts that his father had developed with the Numantines or the Celtiberians to extract those soldiers. He looked around at the political situation in Rome, and he, he saw that they needed to do some major reforms if Rome was to... Uh, successfully continue on its uh, career of of building uh, an empire, and he, you know, he he didn't just look at the problems in Spain because the Roman army was starting to break down. It wasn't able to. It was often having setbacks or even disasters in the Spanish campaign, and he saw the problem was bigger than just the army. Uh, it was a society wide problem, and so he went into politics. He got elected tribune. And in the the 130s, and the Tribune was an office where it was designed to counter the power of the aristocrats. So a Tribune had the power to veto legislation, as I said in, in um, last week's episode. And he was supposed to look out for the interests of the poor. So it was a natural position for uh, Tiberius to go after. He succeeded in becoming Tribune, and then he started proposing. He put forward a major proposal for land reform which would it would have the government take back over a lot of land that had been distributed sorry let me back up a lot of the land that these patricians had taken the latifundia had been public land at least technically it was agar publicos so it was land that the government controlled and that any roman was allowed to farm now there was an ancient law that said that no person was supposed to hold more than 300 acres or in roman measurements 500 ugra of land this law had basically been in abeyance nobody paid attention to it which is why a lot of the patricians were able to amass huge amounts of land so tiberius put forward a law saying look we we recognize that the system has gotten out of control, and what we're going to do is we're going to compensate anybody who has over 500 ugra of land for their land, but we're going to bring it back into the state and then distribute it to the soldiers and the peasants. It was an eminently wise proposal. It was not a punitive proposal. It was not a vindictive proposal. It was just a, a reasonable way to deal with the land distribution problem. He also was interested in solving the problem of citizenship for the Italian allies. So remember, a lot of Rome's, uh, a lot of the states that Rome controlled, uh, a lot of the other Italian city-states wanted to get that Roman citizenship. And both of these proposals were just a dead letter with the Senate. So they tried every trick in the book to undermine Tiberius. One of the things they did was to buy off a uh, another tribune by the name of Drusus, to veto all of Tiberius's proposals so that he couldn't move forward with them. He was able to, to push around that and force a vote on his proposals, which won out. But in the end, the Senate was able to sideline him and then eventually have him killed. It was sort of 
it disintegrated into a sort of Charlottesville-like situation where, with a standoff on the forum and different sides uh, waiting for somebody to make a move, and eventually somebody killed Tiberius. A similar thing happened about 10 years later, around uh, 120. Tiberius's younger brother, Caius Gracchus, tried to follow in the career of his older brother and put forward land, uh, land ref- a land reform bill and uh, bills to enfranchise or at least bring the allied states up to half citizenship, if not full citizenship. And the Senate and the oligarchy viciously opposed this. And Caius was also, uh, his his supporters were, were shot down in the forum by Cretan archers, and then he was forced to flee the city. And as he was fleeing, people were cheering for him. I mean, this is from Plutarch. People were cheering for him, um, but nobody would would uh, actually step up and lend him a horse or anything like that, give him any material aid, because they feared that if they did so, uh, they would be reprimanded or, or punished by the state. One can easily uh, sympathize with Caius in his predicament. So reform did not happen. Uh, Rome continued to, uh, you know, they, they pushed through the, the, they managed to tamp down on Caius and Tiberius Gracchus, and they continued their foreign wars in Hispania and in North Africa. In North Africa, there was a war uh, that ended up being a lot like our Vietnam. The Romans came into uh, came to fight this Numidian tribesmen. Remember, the Numidian tribes were the, uh, I guess you could say they're the predecessors to the modern Berbers. They were a, a people who were very good at light cavalry, and they were divided into tribes, and they controlled Algeria and Tunisia, out, basically outside of what the area of the old uh, Carthaginian uh, territory had been. And Jugurtha was a very crafty leader of these people. He managed to keep the Romans out by um, one point bribing a Roman official to give him a favorable treaty. This bribe became known at Rome, and the Rome the Senate tried to investigate, but Jugurtha managed to bribe his way out of that, and he even managed to ha- um, have a cousin of his at Rome assassinated because this cousin had been pushing for uh, Roman intervention in Numidia. You can again, easily see the comparison with modern America with barbarian peoples having influence in the capital, even though like wh- where where is even the the popul- the population that supports this uh, position? Anyway, so Rome had to get involved in Numidia, so they sent some legions. Uh, it ended up being for several years a disaster. This went from one twelve to one hundred six BC. Jagartha was very good at luring the legions out into the open desert and cutting them off from water and then either annihilating them or at least severely mauling them. Rome finally was able to gain the upper hand when a new man by the name of Gaius Marius came onto the scene and got himself appointed uh, the second in command in Numidia to a patrician by the name of Metellus. Uh, Once Marius got Metellus out of the way, he was able to take full command in Numidia and then implement uh, the sort of style of war that he wanted to do. Metellus had been waging more of a counterinsurgency type campaign, hold areas, uh, try to make friends with the locals, that sort of thing. But Marius was like, no, we're just going to kill everybody. 
which is really in these sort of situations the only thing you can do. Marius succeeded in pushing uh, and and aggressively going after Jagartha. One of the main things he did was to simply re-implement discipline in the Roman army, which had fallen apart uh, because of demoralization and because of lower quality of recruits. And he then slowly broke the broke the troops in by having them uh, go out and do missions that were very easy and get into skirmishes where they weren't likely to lose and they could sort of get acclimated to combat before he started really going hard after Jagartha because the Roman army just was not in a state to uh, really prosecute the war very effectively. The war was only finally won when another patrician by the name of Sulla, uh, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, came onto the scene. He was a young officer, a young patrician, an aristocrat, and Sulla and Marius were able to work together. Later, they would become rivals. But Sulla had a connection with a Numidian chieftain by the name of Bocchus, and Sulla was able to make a deal with Bocchus to turn over the the primary insurgent chieftain, Jagartha, to him and went out on this mission where he actually, him and a few other men actually went into the camp of Bocchus. And it was a very testy thing because Bocchus could have swung either way. You know, these North Africans are very seedy people and they might change their mind and decide to imprison and torture or kill you. But it worked out. Bocchus decided that his best bet was to stick with Rome. He turned over Jagartha to Sulla. Sulla brought him back to Marius. The two of them and the army went back to Rome. Uh, Marius had a triumph and Jagartha was killed. Now, it seemed that that was, you know, it was a, a big victory for Rome, uh, but really by the skin of their teeth. Marius was then able to implement uh, a series of military mil- military reforms um, because he had seen that the Roman army just wasn't up to the same standard. And so one of the things he did was he basically just got rid of the whole system of Velites and Principi and Hastati and Triari, and he just reduced everyone to the same troop type, made everyone basically the same as the old Principes had been. Big shield, armor, helmet, standardized equipment, sword, javelins. And the other thing he did was he cut down on the baggage train so he made troops carry their most of their own equipment and um this had two benefits one they didn't have to worry as much about a huge baggage train and two it gave them uh made the soldiers uh, have better physical fitness because if you have to carry 80 or 100 pounds every day you're going to be a pretty tough guy the uh reforms in the military and the bare uh barely win in North Africa came just in time because right then a big uh, two big confederations of Germani of Germanic peoples moved into what is now southern France what was then Gallia Provincia these were the uh, Teutoni and the Cimbri now there's a lot of theories as to why this happened. Where did these people come from? Uh, we're talking uh, hundreds of thousands of people and you know, tens of thousands of warriors. So these are big, big groups of people. Where did they come from and how did they just appear on the scene at this time? The modern or the currently popular theory says that it was due to climate change. Uh, this is, of course, laughable. Um, 
maybe there was some change in the climate that caused uh, that was the proximate cause, but the real cause must have been that Rome was succeeding very much and the economy of the Western Mediterranean was developing rapidly. There was more grain being produced, uh, more manufactured products, and these would have been traded throughout Northern Italy and Gaul and even into Northern Europe. This would have led to a increase in the population in Northern Europe, which eventually, given that they're barbarians and not well organized, they would have exceeded their population, uh, the, the carrying capacity of their area and you would have had big groups of people who were excess who would then act, you know, move in big groups like refugees or uh, invading tribes and uh, go towards civilization where they could try to steal and take um, supplies. This is exactly what we see today with uh, migrations of peoples into Europe um, due to spiking population in Africa and in the Middle East, which is thanks to industrialization. And it's the same exact thing that um, happened in the fall of Rome with the Volkerwanderung, the movement of the Germanic peoples into uh, France and Italy and Spain and North Africa. And it's probably also what happened. Uh, it was probably the real cause of the uh, Bronze Age collapse and the movements of the Sea Peoples into the Eastern Mediterranean. So the Teutonies, uh, the Teutoni and the Kimbri, or sorry, the Teutones and the Kimbri, wrecked havoc on the Romans for a few years, defeated several large armies at a couple large battles. And the Roman people were panicking. And so they asked for Marius because he was their best commander and the only man who could put a stop to this. He implemented his military reforms. Another reform that he did in order to fight against these big Germanic tribes was to do away with the maniple. Um, the Roman army up to this point had been organized in legions, and legions were comprised of 30, 10 times 3, yeah, 30 maniples. Uh, a maniple would be a unit of about 120 men, comprising two centuries of about 80 each. Uh, the manip and that the maniple would be the big block of men that you'd actually put out on the field, because the Romans were facing such a huge army, uh, a horde of Germanics. Marius thought it better to reorganize these maniples into bigger units called cohorts. So he took three maniples. Uh, and put them into one cohort. So a legion now comprised 10 cohorts. The cohort had been a unit that had been used not by the Romans and the legions themselves, but by the allies. Remember, the Roman allies were obliged to give troops to Rome uh, throughout the Punic Wars and the succeeding uh, century. Those units were provided in cohorts, which were uh, units of about 128 times six, 48, uh, 400, 480 or 500 men. And up to this point, a cohort meant specifically a unit of Roman allies, but Marius implemented that in the Roman army. This had the effect, the positive effect of when you're standing on the field facing a big army, you're surrounded by 500 other dudes rather than just 160 other dudes, which makes you a little bit more confident in yourself. And Marius defeated the Teutones and the Kimbri at two battles, uh, basically just annihilated them and problem solved. He then went on to, uh, through this time, this is starting 104 BC, he held five consulships in succession, 104 uh, every year up until 100 BC. And it had been prophesied by a seer 
uh, that he would hold seven consulships, and the Romans were very superstitious. Marius was no exception. And he'd already held one consulship before this, and so for the next 10 years, he was waiting for his seventh consulship. Let's go back to Sulla for a second. So throughout these wars, Sulla was also a, uh, a Roman officer. He was not leading armies. Uh, you know, He was a, a subordinate officer to Marius for most of it. Um, but Sulla has a very interesting character, and Plutarch ca- talks about this. Sulla was unusual for an Italian in that he was blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and he had sort of ruddy, blotchy, pale skin. And he was unusual in his character in that he was like, he was a total bro. Uh, He was, he loved, I mean, he could do business when he needed to, but he loved to drink. And he, in his free time uh, through his youth up into his old age, his retirement, he liked to spend his free time hanging out with actresses, actors, musicians, just bohemian type people. And he hated to talk about politics or business when he was in these situations. He went through a number of women. Uh, he had several wives and uh, he even had a baby or I guess he would call it a sugar mama at one point uh, named Nicopolis who was older than him and Plutarch says was the lover, not the beloved in the relationship. Now, we all know what that means in a gay relationship. I don't know what it means when your your uh, your sugar mama is your lover, but uh, it's not good, whatever it is. But that might have just been slander on the part of Plutarch. I only include it because it's amusing. Sulla, uh, despite his libertine streak, was a very effective leader and commander of men. And both Marius and Sulla were able to become powerful politicians at Rome, not just because of their prowess on the battlefield, but because they took an active interest in their troops and represented their troops' interest in Roman politics. One of the ways they both did this was whenever a uh, they succeeded in, in going into the Senate and demanding land for their men, for their veterans. Sulla would see to it that his men got land in Italy or North Africa if he had to, but prefer- preferably Italy uh, upon retirement so that they would have uh, a farm to live on after they'd gotten out of the army after 16 or 20 years. And this made the men no longer loyal to the Senate or the Republic, but instead loyal to Marius or loyal to Sulla. So both men were able to be effective in Roman politics because they had a mass of men behind them who would support them under any circumstances. And the Senate and the other politicians rightfully feared them. At around this time, also, there was a sort of split in Roman politics between two street factions called Populares and Optimates. The uh, Populares were, as the name sounds like, the popular ones, the ones who were for the people, and the optimates were the ones who were for the aristocrats, and broadly speaking. There is a tendency in the historical literature to say, well, this isn't the same as modern politics because there was no ideological content in the programs or, or whatever, the the optimates and the populares. I mean, I, I think that's ridiculous. There's, of course, no ideological content in the Democratic or Republican parties or any of the parties in Europe either. So I th- see the comparison as being perfectly valid. The 
uh, you know, Marius would have been a uh, it was the favorite of the of the the populares, and Sulla became the champion of the optimates. And some of the other politicians in Rome uh, allied themselves or aligned themselves with each side. Uh, Metellus, the uh, Marius's former boss, the commander, the original commander in uh, Numidia, was an optimate, and these two sides sort of stayed as political factions into uh, the later Republic and up to the very end until really uh, street politics and and uh, legislative electoral politics were stamped out by Augustus. So between the two sides, it's really less a question of ideology or not a question of ideology at all, but instead one of uh, sympathy or of mood. The optimates were sort of for the old Roman position, uh, much like the conservatives of today and the populares were for the people. Although I guess I would have said that ten years ago, but now with the you know American, the rise of Trumpism and and pop uh, right wing populism, it's hard to tell uh, who to compare each side to. I think the uh, Roman populares and optimates were a little bit more consistent. So Marius and Sulla, they were the main players in Roman politics through the nineties BC. In ninety BC. The Roman allies finally had had enough of their subordinate position, and they went into open revolt against Rome. The old Samanite cities and Etruscan cities rose up against Rome and formed a confederation, which they called Italia, uh, headed at a city which they renamed Italica. And they basically just created a total copy of the Roman government uh, with a Senate and consuls and and everything, uh, much like the American Civil War. And the Roman government was able to defeat and destroy the uh, the allies. It's called the social war because sulci in uh, Latin means allies. You're, you're the the social the social has to do with allies. So uh, Rome was able to basically break off uh, some of the allies. Do do what they always did with the other peoples uh, in Greece or wherever else. Divide et impera. Divide and conquer. So the Senate was able to break off some of the uh, rebellious towns and say, well, you know, come over to Rome and we'll give you citizenship. And then they were able to isolate the really hardcore ones and then finally defeat them militarily. So Rome did win the social war uh, on the battlefield, but in a way, the Italian allies got what they wanted because after the social war, they were given uh, Roman citizenship. So now all of Italy was Roman. The rivalry between Marius and Sulla finally came to a head in 88 BC. Sulla was elected consul and he selected or uh, was given by lot a uh, an assignment to wage a war in Asia against a new uh, eastern rising potentate by the name of Mithridates. This was a, a very lucrative command. Uh, if you took the army to Asia and you could defeat Mithridates, you were sure to win a lot of gold and treasure, and your troops were sure to get a lot of it themselves and love you. And you're also going to, you know, if you could win the war, come back with a triumph. So this was something Sulla was very interested in, and it was something that Marius was very interested in preventing. Marius and his faction, uh, his chief henchman was a fellow by the name of Cinna, uh, conspired to get uh, or tried to get uh, Marius's uh, Sulla's command taken from him. Uh, they 
almost succeeded, but Sulla went before his men uh, in, in a town outside Rome before they departed for Greece and brought his case to them, explained how he had been wronged and how they were being wronged, and rallied them to march on Rome. Now, before this point, marching on Rome would have been unthinkable, indeed was unthinkable. Nobody had ever done it. No Roman had ever gone against the state like that. But Marius, you know, the political situation had disintegrated to the point where Marius and his men felt there really was no other recourse. And while some of the officers deserted and didn't want anything to do with the coup, cucks, uh, Marius rallied the men, marched on Rome, and, sorry, not Marius, God, Sulla, uh, rallied the men, marched on Rome, and Marius was left in the city, or and his faction was left in the city, and didn't see that one coming. Uh, Sulla and his men fired a lot of the houses, marched into the city, and basically got Marius kicked out, and Marius had to flee. So then Sulla went, got in the ships, went to Greece, went to Asia, waged wars there for about six years, and a lot of destruction, a uh, lot of killing. He sacked Athens. Uh, it was pretty bad. But then he had to come back to Rome because the situation in Rome was getting worse and worse and worse. The Marian faction had weaseled its way back into power. Uh, Marius himself got uh, elected consul one last time, fulfilling the prophet, uh, the prophecy. And uh, he died 13 days into his consulship, but his crony uh, Cinna took over from him. Sulla brought his legions back from the Orient. Now they're toughened even more. They're you know experienced in even more wars and even more fanatically loyal to Sulla. And he marched on Rome a second time uh, throughout the Marians. And then he took a step that nobody had ever done before or nobody had ever thought of. He started posting lists of people who it was now legal to kill. These are prescription lists. And the first day he's said to have posted the names of 80 men who were members of the opposite faction or men who he thought were corrupt or people he just didn't like. And then the next day, 220. And then the third day, another 220. This went on. Uh, it was, you know, every day in the forum, they'd put up the list. People would gather around. Sometimes you might see your name on the list. And Every thug and rogue in the city was authorized to kill you. And if they killed you, they got to take your stuff. So this went on for a while. And it came to the point where pretty much everybody, uh, it was sort of a running joke that the main thing that would condemn you was not any political activity that you'd taken. It was just having a villa or having property that would get you killed. Now, I guess the Roman historians like Plutarch aren't too hot on that. But I mean... It is a bit Bolshevik, I guess, but given the state of politics at Rome in the 80s BC, one could be forgiven for thinking that pretty much anybody above a certain property qualification was probably a shithead. So I'm not going to cry tears over it, and Sulla didn't either. He uh, once was asked, when would the prescriptions end, or how would people know if they were in the clear? And Sulla said, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, after he'd purged everybody from Rome that he needed to, he then implemented um, basically a Ronald Reagan program of basic bitch conservative reforms to try to reset the Constitution the way it had been in the days of, say, the Second Punic War or, or earlier. So 
the thing, you know, he was looking at the problems and, you know, I think unlike Tiberius or Caius Gracchus, Sulla didn't look at the deep uh, systemic problems. He was looking more at the, the basic legalistic problems. And as at Optimate, he wasn't really interested in doing big sweeping reforms that might help the people. He was more interested in just bringing the constitution back to the way it was so that the conservative um, aristocratic faction could could maintain its power. So one of the main things he did was that he cut back on the powers of the tribunes. So the tribunes were no longer allowed to propose legislation and they were still allowed to veto, but if you were elected tribune, you were it was a dead end. You weren't allowed to run for any other office. So you couldn't you could no longer run for tribune and then say run for praetor or run for consul in a later year. So that that ensured that the mo more ambitious men would not want to run for tribune and and try to make a political career out of it because they'd be cut off uh, from the consulship. Sulla's reforms were lasting. I mean, they lasted for about ten years, and he himself retired afterward and went back to his usual thing of hanging out with actors and actresses and musicians and drinking. And he was able to walk around Rome without a bodyguard, which he would brag about. And he said it was because he had no more enemies left. Of course, it's because he'd killed them all. And uh, fittingly, he died of liver failure. So... Now we've come to 80 BC. Let's do a little comparison of this all with modern times, because all of this, you know, I said at the beginning that that you should recognize a lot of uh, the problems in Roman civilization. Uh, it should look a lot like the trajectory of America since 1945. And the other thing that you can see in all of this history is basically the way that politics actually works and the ways that you can bring about substantive reform, even under the pressures, uh, the civilizational problems that Rome had at the time or that we see now. So the first thing, uh, wealth distribution, um, I, I don't really have much to say on that. The, the wealth distribution in America is, is going in the same way that, that it was in Rome, where the elites are able to take more and more and more. Uh, take, for example, the recent strike or almost strike by railroad workers in the United States. They're striking because they've been squeezed. The uh, railroad companies have been trying to uh, make them work more and more hours for less and less money. Uh, this is no doubt because uh, it's profitable to the managers, or I shouldn't even say to the managers, to the, the stock owners and to the, the Jewish CEOs. Well, sorry, the CEOs aren't Jewish, but a lot of the stock is controlled by Vanguard and um, BlackRock. And I mean, that just, just, just one example. I mean, it, it is quite clear that American society is going along the same way. European society is going the same way, where it's more and more difficult to have a career, have a job, make any money. Uh, the little people are being squeezed. The big people are getting richer and richer. The uh, second commonality we have is the army. Uh, the Roman army went from being a conscript army in, the, in 200 BC to being a professional army in the time of Marius. This was because um, you can only have a conscript army when you have high social trust and a 
relatively just civilization, a relatively just state, only then will people be willing to sacrifice for it. I mean, you can't, a conscript army isn't really a forced army. It's an army where 90% of the people volunteer to be there. And then the state takes it upon itself to force the unwilling 10% to join. But that's not possible if 30 or 40 or 50% of people don't want to serve. And that's what started to be the case uh, in the later Roman Republic. Think of the Juggerthine War, where the Romans were having a very hard time recruiting. And Marius actually had to go to to the extreme of eliminating the property qualification. I didn't say that earlier. I should have said it. Uh, Marius eliminated the property qualification for Roman legionnaires. So now he could recruit the urban proles. It's the sort of the same thing you see in the United States, especially since Vietnam. By Vietnam, it was no longer there was no longer enough social trust and loyalty to the state for um, the government to have a conscript army. It had to, after Vietnam, shift to a professional army. The uh, another aspect of this uh, comparison with Rome uh, allies. So we see the Italian allies wanting to get Roman citizenship, wanting to be treated on the same level as Romans. I guess the the best analogy for this today would be America's European allies are uh, the, I shouldn't say our, Zog's uh, vassals in Europe. I don't, maybe this is more of a longer range prediction, but I think that maybe in the coming decades, we'll start to see Europeans want to get more of the benefit of empire and be treated more on the level of an American state and not as a European country or as an independent country because uh, they're not. Uh, another thing, so I mentioned at the beginning also the Constitution not being fit. I think the founding fathers foresaw this uh, to give them credit. I mean, they had read all of this Roman history. They knew this, this stuff I've talked about today very well. And I think when we look at the American Constitution and we see things like the president having a four-year term and being able to be reelected, uh, I think that's the founding fathers recognizing the problem of the Roman Constitution of turning over executive power once every year and then not being able to hold power again for 10 years. That was the, theoretically the rule. Of course, many people, Marius, obvious example, violated it. But the American Constitution, it doesn't seem anymore to be adequate to the problems of uh, a state like America is, like an empire. Uh, and it's it's almost strange to talk about an American Constitution because the Constitution really isn't in effect anymore. And we have these theoretical laws. We have things like free speech or freedom of uh, freedom of assembly, but. As everybody knows, these are de facto not existing anymore. I mean, you you can exercise your right to free speech, but the system throws up every possible obstacle to doing so. And the American uh, the American Constitution obviously did not for. I mean, this is a whole podcast in itself. I mean, I'm just going to point out some of the obvious ones. But the American Constitution obviously did not foresee America building a huge empire. And in order to maintain a huge empire, you need to have something of a intelligence apparatus and a large military apparatus. The American Constitution is very clear that it wants a limited military. And uh, I mean, traditionally, for the first 200 years of American history or the first 150 years, armies would be raised when they were needed, and then they would be dismissed. And 
the army was basically just the cadet corps at West Point and maybe a few other small formations. This standard army or standard large, standardized regular professional large army is really only a thing of the period since 1945. And the Constitution also certainly did not foresee for the creation of a massive uh, intelligence apparatus like we have now, and especially like we've had since 9-11 with domestic spying like the FBI. So what does all this mean for us? I want to end before the typical uh, liberal objection to all this. It sounds like I've been making a case that you need to have morals in order to have a good society and have effective politics. Uh, I am, in fact, saying that. There is a, li a liberal misconception that this means typical conservative politics where you should go out like maybe Cicero might have done and demand that people... Uh, reform themselves and be moral. This is stupid and it doesn't work. The way that the way that morality matters is not trying to beg people to be moral, it's to find the people who are moral or at least have the potential to be moral and to build them into groups and then to work together because only moral people have the ability to work together in groups and only groups have the ability to be effective in politics. This should be fucking obvious. Uh, you know, you can see that throughout all this history, uh, both Tiberius and Caius Gracchus and Marius and Sulla operated on th basically these principles. They understood that they needed to have the fanatical loyalty of their clients, uh, their dependents in the proletariat and in the plebeian class. Or in the case of Marius and Sulla, they had their dependents in the military and then also, you know, the, the friends and, and uh, families of those people and uh, other civilians who were dependent, who were clients of Marius and Sulla. And that's why these men were able to wield power. So if you want to figure out how do you go forward, what's the end game? What, how do you go forward in a, a, a society that's coming apart at the seams like America or Republican Rome? You should look at their examples. The way you do it is not by isolating yourself and not by uh, trying to win. Well, isolating yourself is just stupid. And also it, it, it's going to, I mean, I won't even address that. The notion that you can work your way into a position of authority like the presidency or uh, the uh, Congress position or a governorship or something like that and be effective is laughable. The only way that those positions have any meaning is if you have organic support, people who are actually loyal to you and not just loyal to you, but dependent on you. Donald Trump has, <clears throat> has people who are loyal to him, but he doesn't have a lot of people who are dependent on him. He doesn't have the ability, if he were elected president again, or when he was last elected president, he didn't have the ability to draw on a big pool of people uh, and put them in positions of authority and then have them wield actual power witness the way he put Jeff Sessions in the Department of Justice and Sessions immediately caved and let the Department of Justice attack Trump, witness the way that Trump uh, appointed Flynn as his national security advisor and the FBI just went right after Flynn. Y you can't do that. You cannot allow your own people to be cut out from under you. The most vicious example of this is January 6th, when Trump let his own encouraged his own people to protest the election, and then left them out on the field when they got attacked by the government and is still leaving them out on the field. So 
not only is it immoral, it's just impractical to do things that way. The only way you're going to win real power is if you have the loyalty and the dependence of people around you. There is uh, some ability, there there would be some ability for an American politician today to win uh, the dependence of other people. Uh, One way, obviously, is just advocating for people. If you are the only game in town advocating for them, well, then you're going to win some of their loyalty. And it also comes down to another theme I've been talking about, the selection process. Remember early on in the Roman Republic, uh, or early on in this period around 200 BC, getting into a, uh, becoming a general or becoming a consul was enough, was good enough to, uh, to wield authority. And in order, and in getting there, you had to be the sort, you had to be a moral, honorable, tough, brave man. They weren't looking for men who were good at giving speeches or men who were good at, uh, trickery and backstabbing and ass kissing. They were looking for warriors and leaders toward the end of this period, you still needed warriors and leaders. I mean, Sulla and Marius, no one would accuse them of being anything but. But you also, the real career, the real way to be successful, maybe not at the top of the government, but at least in the middle, was to be an ass kisser. Uh, Something that wouldn't have been tolerated in uh, the Second Punic War, because if you were an ass kisser and you weren't competent, well, they would just kick you out or put you in a, in a, uh, a penal battalion because they had no use for you. I mean, you're you're actively dangerous if you're incompetent and you're just an ass kisser. But when a society is successful, like Rome was uh, after the Second Punic War, they can afford to tolerate people who are incompetent losers. The uh, last thing I'll say on on this is you either participate in history or, or you don't. The only way to participate in history is going to involve taking risk. That sucks. Uh, nobody wants to do that, and nobody likes the idea of being killed or being thrown in prison, or losing everything, losing all their friends, being slandered. Nobody likes any of those things. But you either do it or you don't. And if you don't, you're you're just a faggot, because everybody dies, but not everybody lives. That's all for this week. Heil Hitler. <laughs> <laughs>